This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. There has been an awful lot talked about with what happened on Lock Street on the weekend. An awful lot. Written about, shown on TV, talked about here on the radio. But there is, as I said a few moments ago, there is one thing that really hasn't been addressed yet. And that is why. And you all know the story now. You all know what's been going on. You know all that kind of stuff. But now that police have tied, seemingly, they say, tied this anarchist book fair to what happened, we can, I think, very fairly now say there are some folks who describe themselves as anarchists who would be behind this. But what does that actually mean? I think a lot of us have a very vague, very general, very nondescript view of what an anarchist is. But do we really actually know and do we really know what this group may have been hoping to achieve? There is some confusion, so we're going to try and clear that up now. Dr. Francis Dupuy-Derry is a professor of political science at the University of Quebec at Montreal. He is also the author of a book called Anarchy Explained to My Father. He joins me now. Professor Dupuy-Derry, thank you for doing this today. Hi, Scott. Now, as I was reading a review of your book, and I apologize that I did not have time today to read your book entirely. Don't uh, But I understand. Am I correct that you are a self-described anarchist? Well, I uh, yes, okay. I am. Although I am a professor in a state university, so it's a kind of a paradox. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I I have an experience as a as a as an activist, and I also studied and published actually a book also on the black bloc. Who's afraid of the black bloc? So okay, so this is and it's perfect then because you then as a professor and as someone who has a background in this, this is what I was hoping would be able to do a, a job explaining this. If I am an anarchist, and I know generally we have to say generally because I'm sure everybody has a slightly different view, but if I You're am right. an anarchist, generally, what is my philosophy? I believe in what then? What is it that I stand for? Well, you you'll be uh, against uh, capitalism. And uh, therefore, against uh, you, you can be involved in the anti-gentrification movement, for instance, as anarchists in Berlin or in London, UK, or in in Montreal. Uh, you can be a radical ecologist, and you will be against the state and against uh, the police forces. But you can also be a radical feminist, for instance, or radical queer. So, so basically, you are against uh, hierarchical system. And uh, you are for uh, organizing yourself uh, without hierarchy, without without uh, without a leader on a libertarian and egalitarian basis. Okay, and so, and that I, I mean that that part I think many of us is what we understood this to be. But has that ever occurred? That kind of system where there's no leader, where there's no hierarchy, is that a utopian view of what? an anarchist would hope exists or has there ever been a time in in any society where that has existed oh absolutely uh, I, I, as a matter of fact in in canada uh, most of the native nations were living without a hierarchy and without private property before uh, the colonization by the french then by the the, the english and it's exactly what uh, some uh, indigenous uh, scholars will say like Tayeke Alfred, who teach political science at University of Victoria, coined the term uh, anarcho-indigenism uh, exactly to, to, to describe this, uh, this link between indigenous uh, tradition and indigenous history and uh, modern anarchism. So it's not an utopia. It's, a, it's something that already exists, that has been often destroyed, 
by European colonialism, but it still exists, uh, I would say, everywhere. Everywhere you have people who organize themselves and collective, collectively act themselves without leaders. I don't know how you do with your friends, for instance, but I, I guess you don't uh, elect a leader to decide what you will do with your friends tonight. Okay, um, and that's that would be true, but at the same time, even when we have the anarchists groups uh, I- here in Hamilton or elsewhere, there are those who speak as the leaders and who would uh, decide when they're going to have rallies or decide when they're going to lead things, don't they? There, there has to be. It, it, it naturally follows. People always end up selecting someone, whether intentionally or just naturally, pe- they select leaders, do they not? Well, as I said before, before the interview... Uh, on the phone, I will not speak about Hamilton per se. For sure, uh, I have not been there. I, I don't know the people there, so I will. I, I don't claim to know what happened there and what is going on there. So, if the if, if the anarchist community of Hamilton has a leader, it will be a really original uh, okay. anarchist community. <laughs> okay. Uh, for us, I understand the anarchists don't have leaders. Uh, they 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 really they are well aware that some people uh, may have more influence in their group than others, uh, more skills in uh, talking in public, for instance, or skills with uh, computers or whatever. Uh, so, it's, it's, so the uh, anarchist people usually uh, are really well aware that we are not all equal, but they are obsessed by, by, by this issue and they, they will try the best they can to uh, reduce uh, inequalities in their group and to uh, reduce the impact of illegitimate uh, power in their groups. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Continuing our conversation with Dr. Francis Dupuy-Derry, a professor of political science at the University of Quebec and an author on anarchy. Um, and going back to something you uh, mentioned when we started the discussion, uh, anarchists by well, maybe by definition or by action, don't want the idea of capitalism. What would be the system, ideally, in a utopian world that they would that, that you would have or that a, an anarchist would have in society? Well, there is there is debate among anarchists about about it, but uh, what what they try to do usually in the in Germany or in England or in the United States or in Montreal in Montreal or elsewhere is to uh, if they can if they are, if they if they can is to uh, live together and uh, work together as i said uh, earlier we, uh, uh, of course without without a leader and uh, but there is a debate about uh, if we must uh, uh, take into account the the amount of work someone is 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 putting in the in the collective or if everybody can have uh, uh, what what he needs is it about needs or is it about effort or is it about the time you spent uh, working? There is debate about that. But what is clear is that we don't want anyone to make uh, money from the work of other people, what is called exploitation. And because one of the one of the things that I struggle to understand would be that, that I could understand that if, if that was a, a smallish group that was going to do mm-hmm. this. But if you were going to do this across society... Right. It would be, would it not be almost impossible for everyone to be doing an equal amount of work for an equal amount of resource or whatever else? So you would have to have somebody ultimately who would be right. overseeing it, and therefore you're bringing in a leader. But but usually uh, among anarchists, and as I said, they, they don't all argue about this issue, but usually about, about anarchists, the solution will always be uh, small groups, uh, bring things 
more uh, closer to a grassroots organization. And uh, usually anarchists believe that large-scale organizations like uh, uh, nation-state or uh, uh, international corporation are, as you said, uh, necessarily hierarchical, so uh, unfair, unjust, and uh, actually they are they are they are destroying the planet. They are destroying people. They are destroying uh, indigenous uh, culture, lives, etc. So it's not it's, it's not a goal. It's not a it's not the what we we seek for to to organize on large scale population territory. Uh, we have to come back to the the local, the grassroots. And that, and this is where we can uh, act together in face-to-face meeting, face-to-face organization, and uh, hoping, <laughs> avoiding uh, having leader, having a hierarchy, having uh, uh, impersonal and inhuman uh, organization. Are there different levels of anarchists? And what I mean by that is not levels of hierarchy. Are there people within the movement who would call themselves an anarchist who would be extreme? And are there sort of soft anarchists who kind of like part of the idea, but don't necessarily want to push for everything? Are there, are there strata of anarchists? I don't know what you mean by pushing for everything, because right now the, the anarchist uh, movement, although they can uh, succeed in uh, making the news, uh, the anarchist movement is not a, a, a really uh, big uh, political and social uh, forces. If we make a comparison be, uh, with, for instance, uh, just the police forces or the army or the the nation state or the capitalist uh, organization, so seeking so so you you have you have anarchists who will, uh, of course, by definition, anarchists in our society uh, are radical people with regard to political ideals or social ideals or cultural ideals, but uh, they, are, they are radical in their lifestyle, in their own organization. Uh, but what happened in Hamilton, for instance, uh, some people, if they are anarchists, smash a few windows, but smashing a few windows, with all my respect for the owner of the windows, uh, is not that a big thing in the history of, the, uh, of Canada or North America in terms of uh, radicalism or even violence. Why do, though, most, well, most often, I think, when we do hear about anarchists in the news, it is because of events like this kind of thing, or, or at, a, at a, a rally or at a march or something. Why does it seem that so often that we hear about anarchists involved in events like this, in incidents like this? You mean in the media? Yes. Well, you are the media. You well, have the answer. No, but it, I, I, can, I can answer for you. Uh, I don't know if the the media in Hamilton uh, pay any attention to the anarchist book fair, for instance. Uh, but it's 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 journalists must must answer this this question. Why why are they interested in anarchism or uh, radical ecologism, for instance? Only when there is a spectacular uh, action like what happened a few days ago, and they don't really care about these phenomena when they are peaceful and quiet because, well, I, but I, uh, because, because anarchists, are, anarchists are, are, are there all the time. They do uh, 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 urban gardening, uh, they, have, okay. they, have, they have bookstores, they, they organize book fair, they organize, they organize food for poor people, uh, whatever, they organize a, a lot of things. But as you said, the media is only interested in 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 in, in direct action. I, I know so, that, but but, but 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 it's it's the media who who has the answer to this question. Yeah, and I know that some reporters tried to go to the book fair and were told they weren't welcome there and there were going to be no questions answered. That's so, possible. 
and, and so as a result, then we end up with this back and forth where if they won't tell us what they stand for. Now, I appreciate you doing that, but if they won't tell us what they stand for and the only time we see them is when they're throwing bricks through windows, mm. naturally people are going to have an impression of them. Mm-mm-mm. But it, but this is but this is the the but but this this issue of uh, uh, direct action as a as a as a really long uh, history in North America and in in Europe also uh, the worker movement the feminist movement I don't know if you saw the the movie uh, Suffragettes for instance uh, the indigenous movement in Canada uh, the ecologist movement in Canada and the anarchist movement uh, they all use at some time. Uh, direct action tactics to bring attention uh, from the public, from the authorities, from the media to their uh, to their uh, to their uh, action, to their cause, to the the issues they they care about. I sincerely appreciate your time today, Dr. Francis Dupuy Derry uh, of the University of Montreal, Quebec. Thank you very much. Thanks to you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show weeknights from six to eight only on 900 CHML. The New York Times had a piece the other day. And it's not the first piece of its kind. This has been written elsewhere, but they just picked up on it recently. It's about something called fat acceptance. Fat acceptance. Essentially, what it means is that because we North Americans, as a rule, one out of three of us now, are getting larger, really larger, we should now accept that as just being part of who we are. Here's a few lines from the story about what it's about. Essentially, perhaps you're among them and you're thinking, that's okay. I'm no different from anyone else. So what's the point of waging yet another losing battle against the bulge? You are not alone. A subtle form of peer pressure has convinced many consciously or otherwise that it's acceptable to be significantly heavier than the normal weight ranges listed on a body mass index or doctor's height weight chart. As Americans have gained extra pounds in recent decades, the story goes on, Mary A. Burke, an economist with the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston who studies social norms, says they seem to have adjusted to a new normal regarding weight. A study she and co-authors published in 2010 revealed a growing proportion of overweight adults, 21% of women and 46% of men, up from 14 and 41% respectively, consider their weight about right. And a study published last year found that fewer adults who were overweight or obese were trying to shed excess pounds. Basically, you're fine. Anyone who would criticize you for being overweight or suggest you lose a few pounds, well, they are fat shaming you and that's wrong and they shouldn't be doing this. It's a lifestyle choice and you're okay with who you are. Well, the question is, is that really the case? Dr. Gregory Steinberg is an associate professor at McMaster University. He's the Canada Research Chair in Metabolism, Obesity, and Type 2 Diabetes. He joins me now. Dr. Steinberg, thanks for doing this today. Yeah, and thank you for having me. I am assuming that at some point along the way you have heard this before, that I can be happy at whatever size I am, and if you want to make me feel bad for that, that's your problem, not mine. I'm okay. You've heard that before, right? Well, you know, certainly we want people to be happy. Uh, that's of not uh, the point of uh, the story. I mean, uh, the real issue with obesity uh, is the health complications associated with obesity. And uh, whether you're obese or not, uh, obviously your mental health be- uh, well-being is uh, of utmost importance. There's two parts to this story, for sure. You're absolutely right, that we don't want to be mocking people 
But at the same time, um, there is a second part to this, which is the physical health. And where this becomes interesting and where why I think the New York Times and some others have really picked up on it lately is that there does seem to be this movement, this they're calling it fat acceptance. I think that's kind of blunt, but regardless um, that, you know, there's a show on TLC now about a very large woman and just being very happy with who she is. And Sports Illustrated has had plus size models now in their swimsuit edition. This is being... You're, it, it is okay to be large is what you're being told. And again, as you say, on your face, on the face of it, there's nothing wrong with that. We want people to be mentally healthy. Uh, but the tricky part is, and I think most doctors would say this because I say I'm happy and I'm healthy doesn't necessarily mean that you're happy or that you're healthy. Yes. Well, that's absolutely true. I mean, the statistics speak for themselves. Uh, We know that you're at a much greater risk of developing numerous uh, chronic metabolic uh, diseases if you are obese or overweight. And uh, that includes uh, cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes, as well as uh, fatty liver disease. And uh, yeah, there's no denying those uh, statistics that ultimately uh, being obese does reduce uh, both the quality and potentially the quantity of the uh, of your life over time due to these uh, comorbidities that could uh, you have a much greater uh, chance of developing over your lifetime. But you say that there's no denying it, and I I think you know most people would generally agree with that. But yet this seem there seems to be a move afoot to try and deny it to say because everyone else is bigger. It doesn't seem to be that big a problem anymore. So if I'm a little bit bigger, that's okay too. Yeah, well, I mean, I think uh, socially uh, acceptable practices, we see that a lot, obviously. Depends who you hang around with, obviously. (laughs) If you hang around with someone who drinks a a case of beer a night, you think it's normal and it's not going to hurt you. Obviously, that's not the case. And the the health uh, implications of that are well studied. And, you know, obesity is the same. And... uh, uh, but clearly, uh, the health consequences are real. I think one of the important things that people do like to point out, though, is that uh, body mass index, though, necessarily isn't necessarily the best indi- indication of health. Uh, we're really interested in adiposity. Uh, what, sorry, what does that, that mean? Bad. So body mass index is the way that we typically measure obesity in the doctor's office. Yes. You know, you measure someone's height. Uh, and you measure their weight, and you get a formula where you get, uh, if you're over 25 to 30, you are uh, overweight, and if you have a score of over 30, you're considered obese. And, you know, over 60% of Canadian adults today are fit into that category of being overweight or or obese. So this is a, you know, it is the majority of people out there. Um, The problem with that is that that scale doesn't take into account uh, adiposity or the ratio of fat to muscle. So we do need to be somewhat uh, cognizant that there is this uh, scale where there is uh, some room, wiggle room, I guess, where people can be healthy uh, with a BMI over 25. But uh, for the vast majority of people, uh, that's not the case. And there is a clearly uh, increased risk of developing many diseases uh, as one becomes obese. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Chatting with Dr. Gregory Steinberg, the Canada Research Chair in Metabolism and Obesity at McMaster University, about fat acceptance. Now, I kind of hate that phrase, I'll be honest, because it's really blunt, but it's the idea that 
if you decide that you're the right size, even if maybe you are obese or overweight, that you should just be happy with that and go on with life because everyone else around you or so many others are. But there are challenges with this. And doctor, if you, uh, what I find really interesting about this, if you have a patient come into the office and you examine them and you were to tell someone they are obese or overweight, generally would they say, yeah, you're right, I am? Or generally would they fight back and say, no, I'm fine? Well, that's a that's a good question. You know, you know, I don't see a lot of patients uh, who are obese, but uh, in my uh, in my practice. But I, I mean, certainly that the uh, the way we work, uh, we want people to be uh, healthy in their uh, in their weight. And they, the facts are that the obesity does increase your risk of disease. And one of the reasons why I think that. Uh, people are becoming uh, somewhat more acceptable of the condition is because they see so many people fail in their attempts mm. to uh, lose weight. Uh, and, uh, and I think this is part of the problem, right, is that uh, people need to realize that it is challenging to lose weight and it's not a factor of a function of something they're necessarily doing wrong. It's just uh, it's hardwired into our physiology that we try to maintain this weight and uh, it becomes very difficult to lose it once it's there. But they, most people would not argue with a doctor who told them they should lose a few pounds, would they? Well, you know, the, absolutely not. I mean, I think that most of the benefits we see with weight loss uh, occur after just uh, a small amount of weight loss, you know, 5 to 10% of weight. So, you know, 10, 10, 20 pounds in the average person can have massive effects on the risk factors for developing diabetes hmm. or cancer. So we're not talking about changing people's whole, uh, the way they look, right? Uh, we're not talking about the biggest loser kind of weight loss here. We're, uh, we're talking about modest weight loss that's sustainable over a pronounced period of time that occurs through modest changes uh, in lifestyle, potentially uh, through uh, greater caloric restriction and uh, eating slightly less calories every day and uh, trying to move a bit more. So uh, uh, small changes are really the key here to uh, sustainable weight loss. When we talk about this story, and again, the New York Times piece and others, it seems that there's sort of conflicting ideas here. There is uh, cosmetic arguments, which is you know, I, I am happy with the way I look. I'm happy with the size I am. And there's medical arguments that say that may be the case. And we're glad that you are mentally and emotionally happy, but your body tells you that you should still make some changes. Yeah, so exactly. I mean, I think it depends on where you are in your life and at what time. I mean, what really worries me, uh, is uh, when we see childhood obesity, the incidence, which mm. has increased so dramatically over the last few years, uh, the last decade or two in particular, where we have a, almost a tripling of the rates of childhood obesity in, in Canada and, you know, tenfold across many parts of the country. Uh, it's one thing if you become uh, overweight or obese in, your mid, in midlife, in your 50s or 60s, but it's, it's, I mean, that happens sort of naturally. You gain a couple pounds every year. Next thing you know, you're overweight or, or obese by the time you're 50 or 60. Uh, but if you start off as an obese child, uh, you have so many more years to develop all these health complications. And this is what really concerns me uh, uh, as far as those health complications that will develop much, much sooner. So it's really a disease of accelerated aging where we see uh, kids developing diabetes instead of in their midlife 
very early type 2 diabetes, uh, as well as fatty liver disease and many cancers. So, and cardiovascular disease risk goes up. So these are incidences where we really need to be aware of trying to get on top of it and uh, cause uh, lower that weight gain. How do we balance this though? Because we've got a situation where, as you say, two-thirds of Canadians, two-thirds of Americans, whatever, are either overweight or obese. So we should be having people uh, presumably being encouraged, as you just described, to lose weight. And yet if we say, or I'm not going to tell someone, but if someone were to say, hey, you know what, you could probably do to lose a few pounds, you are affecting them mentally. You're saying something that is kind of nasty. How do we balance the encouraging someone who you know who needs to do that with not insulting them at the same time? Yeah, you know, I don't see this as insulting. Uh, You know, you wouldn't feel insulted if someone told you your blood sugar was elevated or uh, you had high levels of cholesterol, uh, per se. And, you know, having elevated fat mass is the same sort of risk factor for developing all these other diseases as those other two measures. So it's it's just really sticking with, uh, you know, the facts about the disease um, and treating it objectively and how to potentially... Uh, induce that small amount of weight loss, uh, 5 to 10%, which can have a massive effect on your health. Is there anything else in our society, though, beyond this that is going to have, leaving even aside the health cost of the individual, that's going to have cost to the system more than a, a population that is getting bigger and bigger and heavier and heavier? Is there anything that's going to cost us more taxpayer-wise and system-wise? It seems like this is right up there. Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, the the connection between obesity and the development of type 2 diabetes and the epidemic of type 2 diabetes are, there's no denying that connection. Uh, And, you know, the the cost of managing the type 2 diabetes epidemic is predicted to uh, exceed over uh, several trillion dollars by uh, uh, by 2030. You know, this could bankrupt many uh, health yeah, no systems around the world. No kidding. So uh, something clearly needs to be done. Uh, one of the ways we can treat that epidemic is by cause, uh, you know, promoting some weight loss, which isn't easy. Uh, we have drugs which uh, can suppress appetite and uh, delay our gastric emptying and uh, the amount of the time it takes our food to leave our stomach, which leaves us feeling full for longer. Uh, and these drugs are on the market now, uh, which uh, help uh, exert some effects on weight loss, maybe 5%. What we now need is sort of the next step where we combine these kind of agents that suppress uh, appetite to other uh, agents that can increase our energy use, the amount of bo- energy our body uses. Because one of the things that happens is that after we lose some weight, our metabolism shuts down and slows down. And this is why it's so hard to keep that weight loss off. We got. I, I have to jump in, sadly, because yeah. I am flush out of time. But I um, okay. really, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, no, no worries. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. There is a movement afoot. And I'd love to hear from you if you agree with this one. We've got a few minutes on this one. If you want to jump in, I, I'd, I'd be happy to hear from you. Uh, 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Movement afoot among non-smokers who say, you know what, I deserve extra vacation time at work because I don't take cigarette breaks every day. 
Those people who go downstairs three, four, five times a day for a 10-minute smoke, let's see, you do that, you take a 10-minute smoke break four times a day, there's almost three-quarters of an hour every day that I'm sitting at my desk working and the smoker is down there having a break. Hmm. Why should they be paid the same as me? This is the argument. If I'm a non-smoker and I don't take all these breaks, why should I not be rewarded in some way for this? What do you think? Should smokers, should, pardon me, should non-smokers be rewarded for their non-smoking for the time they don't take off by getting extra vacation time? Well, 42% of American non-smokers in a poll that was done 42% of non-smokers say they should get three to five extra vacation days every year. And you know what? 28% of smokers agree, which I found very surprising. 28% of smokers said, yeah, you know what? The people who don't come down here should get more time off because we take time off every single day. What do you think? By the way, this was a poll of over a thousand American adults, 25% of non-smokers said one to two extra days is fair. 14% said it should be more than six days. I haven't even done the math. So let's do it on the fly here. If you were a smoker and you took four cigarette breaks of 10 minutes a day, we'll round it to 45 minutes just to make it easy. Right? So over four days, that would be three hours, right? And then let's say you've got 20 working days. Well, you know, you're talking about days, day easily days over the course of a year, days that you have spent down there. Now, to, to play devil's advocate in this one, what is not taken into consideration here is what about all the other people? Because there are people in your office who mess around on the internet way more than you do. There are people in your office, I am sure, who go and have long, luxurious experiences in the bathroom (laughs) for hours on end or seemingly hours on end. There are people who take a long lunch hour. Whether this is smokers or not, maybe we should broaden this. I'm going to get to Frank in just one second. Maybe we should broaden this, though. Maybe we should say... Our businesses, our companies, our bosses should be paying closer attention and rewarding those who actually work really hard with more vacation time. But in this particular case, it's smokers that is the issue at hand. Frank joins me now on the phone. Frank, how are you tonight? I'm great, uh, Scott. You know, I'm the guy that just uh, (laughs) takes to heart everything you say and an alternate opinion. I can't get over the way we are pacifying the minority today, Um, um, uh, Scott. And and this goes not just for smoking. This goes for those who are so uh, low in the totem pole of, uh, let's say, eligibility for whatever reason, i.e. bicycle riders. I mean, there's very, very few of them, yet they're getting bike lanes at our cost. People are are causing their employers time off because they got to go out and smoke and they have a right to do so. Now, a break is a break. I just talked on your screener. If I say somebody has a break at 3 o'clock, that means they go out at 3 and they come back at 3.15. It's a 15-minute break, not at so many minutes, 2, 3, and come afterwards. To allow people off time because they are not given an equivalent amount of benefits that aren't written in the benefits of the, of the uh, business where they're working is ridiculous. 
Don't you so, so, so I got to go to news break here, Frank. Oh, but you're run away on me. I, I have to, unfortunately. But you're basically you're taking the position that there should be benefits to people who don't take the cigarette breaks. One other quick thing. Very quickly. Let's defend the, the employers. Who's taking over when that person's out and there's only two people there to work? There you go. Frank, thank you for the call. I appreciate it. I would love to hear from you, Radley at 900CHML.com. Should non-smokers get extra vacation time for the time they don't take smoking during the year outside? I'd love to hear your thoughts on this one. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900CHML. There is an endless conundrum in Canadian university sports. Some people will argue that the reason we don't have a lot of times huge audiences for them is because the athletes aren't that good. It's not as good as American sports. The play is not as high level, perhaps in some cases. But I would argue that the biggest problem with Canadian university sports is not the athletes. It's the atmosphere. You go to a lot of games if you do go. And there aren't necessarily a lot of people there. And it doesn't seem like it's a big deal. It doesn't seem like it's big time. And therefore that affects and influences your view on what's going on in the court. Well, there is an exception to this. Saturday night in St. Catharines, Brock University is going to be playing a championship hockey game. As I understand it, that game is going to be sold out. Just as the last game was sold out. Just as earlier this year when they had a hockey game called the Steel Blade Classic, it's an annual event at the Meridian Center where the Ice Dogs play 5,000-seat arena, Brock University filled that entire place. It was a sellout. As was the case when Brock University held a basketball game against Carlton, the two top-ranked teams in the country. They sold out the Meridian Center for that basketball game. And not just sold it out, they filled it with wild, loud, enthusiastic, red-wearing students who wanted to be there, were excited to be there, and had paid their own money to be there. Not free tickets for students. We're not busing them there to give them a free hot dog just to get them there. They chose to go there and paid to go there. In case you're wondering, this is unique in Canadian sports, in most places for Canadian sports. Certainly in southern Ontario, this is unique. So what is the secret? Well, the guy who probably, I hope, has the answer to this is the guy who's behind all this. I hope he has some kind of answer for us. Uh, he is familiar to all of us here. He used to be the general manager of the Hamilton Ticats when they won their last Grey Cup. He is a Canadian Football Hall of Famer. He was on The Amazing Race. He was just in South Korea watching his son compete in the bobsleigh. His name is Neil Lumsden. He joins us now. Neil, how are you tonight? Uh, good, and if we hadn't been calling, I would have called into the contest. Would you? Just so you know. You yeah, knew this one. Well, I would expect that having played the sport you did, you probably have had a few of these. <laughs> well, yeah, like at a time. Yes, well, yeah. <laughs> uh, first of all, before we get to all this stuff about Brock, congratulations on uh, on Jesse and congratulations on uh, his performance in South Korea. I know you didn't go down the run, but, you know, your dad, that's good for you. Yeah, I'm. Uh, well, we're, uh, we're pretty proud of both our kids, and Jesse is... Uh, his performance and especially in the four man and his, I mean, you know, the, the, the push team, the three behind Justin Cripps did nothing short of a spectacular job. They, they had the best, new, they had the best push time. Well, they had the best push time. They broke the track record and then they came out and broke their, they broke the record again that they just, that they own. So, uh, they really, really stepped up and without question were the, were the fastest start team on the planet. And, um, 
you know, Justin had some good runs, but they just weren't good enough. And I know that uh, they all felt that they had a really, really legitimate shot based on their their, their complete package of, of work this year in the World Cup with some first-place finishes, uh, some gold medals, a lot of podium finishes. So I, he was he was very disappointed, and uh, but at the same time, like in most situations, um, year as time passes and you get over the the initial hurt because he's retiring and he's not going to get a chance to to do it again. And you know he was at the top of his game in in the bobsledders from a brakeman for a number of years, which put you you know one of the best in the world. So um, he should be very proud of. Him. We are extremely proud of him even before he gets in the bobsled, but. Uh, I've always been impressed by his work ethic and his ability to uh, just maybe work harder and achieve more than most. Well, you say he's retiring. I'm uh, I'm fully expecting that as the next Olympics get closer that he will be lured back in because I don't think he can not do something. Jesse's going to be pushing a sled when he's 62. Uh, I'm quite convinced yeah. of that. So, uh, But let us get to Brock for a second because... Um, as I say, it is it, one of the challenges that every university seems to have is not to have necessarily good athletes because most universities have good athletes and many universities have great teams. It's always to get people into the building to watch these athletes and these teams. You guys seem to, you're the athletics director at Brock in case I missed that part. Um, you guys seem to have found the magic. What have you done? Well, it's and and I would add to that that the the number of games that we sell out in the Bob Davis Gym for home games for basketball, our attendance is great for volleyball, and being offsite in hockey is is obviously a little bit more difficult, but, but because the young people got to get there, they just can't stay on campus. But you quoting the last game uh, that we had against York uh, Saturday night, again a sellout, and we expect to do the same for the Queens Cup on Saturday. And I, you know what? I think it's. I'm going to step back into not into the bobsled, but talk about a four-man bobsled for a second. And you know, there there really it takes all four people to participate if you're going to be successful. The pilot has to do what he has to do, and then the the push team, if you will, have to push and do what they do really well and better than anybody else. And I think that when it comes to the environment at Brock, what we have is uh, great leadership around the student body. We have the we are ready team which is is focused on an ongoing basis not only around basketball but all sports and activities and they just do a phenomenal job and that is a student uh driven team for the most part uh, we've got someone in there on a, an ex-student on a, on a contract that does not full-time work but a lot and then we've got robert hilson who a lot of people in the hamilton area knows uh he was a kickmaster and uh he was an athletic director um I think it brought for a number. Now I think I know it for a couple of years. And now he's he he is sort of the the front edge of the wedge and and really helps that team, allows them to be creative. We've got some very very creative people and and hardworking. And and the great thing about it is they work as hard, if not harder, sometimes than the staff because they love doing it. And then that in fact translates into engagement into the student body, and that creates momentum. And and like anything else. You mentioned the steel blade. Even the year before, we you know we call them our showcase games when we go to the Meridian Center, um, which is a, just a fabulous facility here in uh, St. Catharines, and that energy just sort of helps create that experience. And you know Brock has used as as sort of a, not a slogan but a sort of a positioning statement. It's you know coming to Brock, it's a, a great experience academically, socially, and certainly what goes in and around. And we take 
you know, pride in what we do in Brock Sports is creating and help create that experience for students. And it is, um, it really is amazing. A couple of years back before I got there, they made a conscious decision to, in their merchandising and their, in sort of their branding to go red. And no different than what they do in the U.S. and the NCAA. You go to a Michigan game, you know what color you're going to see. You go to Ohio. Well, and Mac, you know, Mac has the maroon, and they've done very well with that as well. Absolutely. And and that's all part of, I think, the buy-in. It really comes down to how hard people work and how engaged they are. And once you've done it, and and the young people, the students, enjoy the environment, um, then it's good to come back. I mean, it's a fun thing to be in. That's... That kind of thing is contagious. Like winning is contagious in sports, no matter what sports you play. This is something that is very contagious. But it it doesn't just happen. It happens because there's a lot of students that put a lot of time in. Robert Hilson, our staff in Brock Sports, and you know what I, the game against Ryerson, and they do uh, you know they do a pretty darn good job themselves um, under Ivan Joseph, their athletic director in Toronto, about supporting and, and their team. They got some pretty good programs, a basketball team being one of them. But, you know, I'm sitting in the stands, and behind me is our president, and then beside him is our board chair. And, you know, they're at the basketball game against Ryerson. And Brian Hutchings, who's ex-CFL guy, he's VP of Finance and Men, you know, he is our, uh, our not a fill-in, but he's the guy who does PA during basketball and volleyball games. I mean, we have such engagement other than just the students that, again, the support is tremendous. So when you take all that, um, I, I think it's a – you know, it's a winning formula. A couple of years ago, um, the We Are Ready team won the OUA award for school spirit. We could probably be front and center every year because I think we probably, all due respect, do it better than anybody else when it comes to our home games and our staging and and engaging the student population. So it's um, it, it really is an army of people, but uh, a lot of it has to do with the students that are involved. I wonder if, you know, you arrived a couple of years ago and they had the Steel Blade Classic. And again, that's the, the big off-site event at the Niagara Ice yep. Dogs Arena. And it's it. And I'm wondering, that one, uh, I don't know if it was fully sold out, but it was pretty darn close if it wasn't. And what I understood after that one was an awful lot of people, the minute it ended, said, hey, are we doing this next year? Where can I get a ticket? I'm wondering if that can almost be pointed to as the the real launching point for all this, that it begins the idea that if we go to a game with our school, it's going to actually be a lot of fun. I, I think you're right, Scott. And uh, I, I, the other side of it is the Steel Blade before that was a tournament format. And we had discussions shortly after I got there. And we said, why don't we, I, I use the term, it, it should be a Panda game like, and Panda game referencing the uh, Ottawa U um, Carlton. football game against Carlton every year that was gone for many years when Carlton got out of football. But this year I went back being an alumni of Ottawa U, and it was held at the old Lansdowne Park. I guess it's TD Stadium, I think, now. And there were 23,000 fans there. Now, they don't think it's that for every game, but, you know, you create that experience, and, you know, maybe you get to that point where there can be ten to 15,000 per game if they happen to play there, if that was their home field. We just have, have done it in a, in a very strategic way in our showcase events when we go to the Meridian, and, you know, maybe we add another one next year based on what the academic requirements are, what what time of year it is, and what exams are, because we have to be cognizant of that. But what you've but, done, though, let me jump in for a sec, because the one thing that's different, though, about what, what strikes me of what you've done from everyone else is there's a lot of places that have a showcase event. The Panda Game is one. When Mac was in the Vanier Cup in 2012 and had 37,000 people there wearing maroon, that was right. one. 
But what you seem to have been able to do, and again, I still don't know how you've done it exactly, is not have just a showcase event that everyone loves and wants to come back to once or twice a year. You've extended this, so you've got lots of people showing up for most of your events. Now, that's unique. Well, I think, you know, I think you're right, because if you if you can't sell your gym out for home basketball games, your own gym, what chance do you have of selling out the Meridian Center? And, you know, on a consistent basis, uh, you know, I've talked, it's funny, I talked to Charles Kissy about this months ago, and I've talked to other coaches that play in gyms, and I said, so when you go to X school, and there's no reason to point certain schools out, I said, well, the crowd's pretty good. He goes, I'll tell you what, depends on the time, but it can be crickets and family and friends only. So I look at that, and then, you know, on a, on a bad night, we might be almost sold out in the Bob Davis gym, which is anywhere between 900 and 1,000, depending on you know, how many you can jam in. If you can't do that, you can't get to the Meridian Center. There's no reason even to try because the natural progression is let's pick some specific games, both hockey and basketball, and really make a big deal. And then you, now you come back and you find that maybe there's, you sell out of your tickets for the next home basketball game, uh, and you've got X amount on sale, and they're sold out two days before the game. Those sorts of things. And then the community jumps in, and they start getting engaged. And, you know, part of the uh, – obviously, the more people we can get to come to Brock, the more people use our services, whether they're other than students. Uh, it's a wonderful thing. And we run a ton of kid camps and youth university programming in the summertime and in, in March break. The more we introduce who we are to people, the better it is for everybody. So the more we can engage. But it, it really, Scott, it comes down to the – the underlying strategy of creating an experience for your student population where they have fun. It's a, you know, sports is about fun. You don't win every game and you go to, you get them by having a strategic plan. And that's where the, we are ready team comes into play and just gets after it. Like our teams do when they play the we are ready team get after it when it comes to distribution of information, whether it's social media or actually the old putting posters up in and around the university, uh, it's, a, it's a fabulous thing. What about the winning? Because right now you are at a high point. Your wrestling team, well, your wrestling team always wins everything. Um, oh, they're, but they're great. Your basketball team, is your men's basketball team is doing very, very well. Your men's hockey team is doing very well. Your curling teams, I think, both won gold medals or something. I mean, there's, there's, lots, of, silver, yeah. there's lots of Brock teams that are doing well. Could this still work? Could you still draw people if your teams had an off year and weren't winning? Could you still bring people into the gym? Well, uh, this is the first year we've Charles Kissy and his team are, have made it, and we got in on a wild card. So last year we didn't make it, um, and we still did. We still had great attendance. The year before, we still drew lots of people, but we didn't go to the nationals. Um, it's tougher offsite with hockey, but I think that what it showed last week against. Uh, our playoff game against York, and I think it will show again this Saturday uh, in the Queen's Cup against McGill, is that other, especially being off-site, Seymour Hanna is a four-pad. It is our home arena for our men's and women's team, um, that we will start to draw those that would maybe go to an ice dog game and, get, and go, holy smokes, uh, Marty Williamson, he's your head coach. He, used, he had success with the ice dogs. Maybe we'll start to see what's going on with the Brock Badgers hockey team. Those sorts of things start to find their way to you, um, and then you, you, you find your attendance go up. You're not just looking at just at students. And the, and the other piece of it is 
we've got a Badgers for Badgers program. Other universities have programs like this, and it's about athletes and coaches supporting other athletes and coaches during their games. So when we played York last week, I saw the men's basketball team. I saw the women's basketball team. I saw a lot of people from women's hockey. I saw some wrestlers, and I see coaches from other teams. And it, that becomes contagious. We, we, we try to make everyone understand that, you know, you're all in this together, so you need to support one another when you get the opportunity. So if you're not playing and, you know, like the wrestlers are done and women's hockey are done and women's basketball, well, then come on out and support your friends because it goes a long way because they know when the next time they play, the rowing team will show up for them. The wrestlers will show up, and it feeds itself. And, again, that's, that's part of the, the culture that we're trying to develop is we're all in this together, and we can make a huge impact by doing this thing, not only for the culture of the university, but for the experience that's given and served up for the students and the student-athletes. And that's why we do what we do. Just got a couple of minutes left here, but you mentioned it's not just the students. And yet, when I was talking to Marty Williamson, your hockey coach, he says the first time he walked out in the fall for that Steel Blade game, and there's 5,000 people in the Meridian Center, he was looking around. He says, first of all, I couldn't hear myself. And he says it was louder than any ice dog. He used to coach the Niagara Ice Dogs in that same arena. He says he's never heard it that loud in there. But the second part was, he goes... I bet you, and this was his words, 80 to 90% of the people there were students. So this is not just drawing people who are walking by or community. I mean, you want to get those, I assume, but at the same time, you seem to have been able to tap into, the students have bought into this. It's not just the community. The community is great. You want the community, but you've really found a way to tap into the students. Yeah, and that again comes back to that We Are Ready group and, and, and just the way a lot of the culture within the school is beginning to develop. And as I said, when you've got the president and um, the chair of uh, the board and you've got your executive that participates, they, you know, it's not that they're buying in, but they find time to go to a game. I mean, these are, we're talking about busy, busy people. And yet, and on a Wednesday night or a Saturday night, you know, you know their ties are loosened up and they're sitting up in the stands. Uh, you know, that makes an impression not only on the students, but the athletes when they see the president, when the vice president's there, the board chair's there. You know, they might not know who some of these people are, but they go, hey, yeah, they're part of the university and they're a big deal. This is important to them. This is really cool. Um, the cool factor helps. There's no question about it. And, the, and again... That's, to me, the biggest thing. You know, that, that, to me, is the biggest thing because millennials, we all know, and it's not just millennials, but millennials are, at times, can be, like the rest of us, cynical and nah, I don't want to go if it's not a cool, I don't want to go somewhere where it's going to be kind of dorky to be there. You have to somehow make it cool, and this has been. Well, you make it cool, and, and you know, you started off by talking before I came on that, you know, Canadian sport is from a quality level, level is no question up and as good as anywhere else on the planet. The difference is we haven't got as many in Canada because of the population. So it's to suggest that we don't produce good football and hockey players and volleyball and basketball players isn't the case. We just don't produce as many on average. So when you look at that and you say, but what we do produce is great, and then you, you know, the, one of the, you know, the great things in the last couple of years going outside of Brock, and let's talk about McMaster for a second, they host Ohio State. Uh, in in volleyball and Ohio State is nationally ranked at one point I think maybe number one number one two time defending champs right and they come into McMaster and McMaster sends them on the way beats them three nothing so don't you can't tell me that we don't produce quality players here that's a big deal that's a really big deal in the sport of volleyball 
in North America. And they and who beat them? Not not you know not Notre Dame, not North Carolina, McMaster University. People have to know that when the when we're talking about our student athletes, whether they're wrestlers or volleyball players or basketball players or hockey players, they're some of the best around. And you know, our students our students are getting it. Our students are getting it. Everyone else seems to be a little bit slower in the pickup, but it's starting to happen. You we got to wrap up. You mentioned McMaster volleyball. They are hosting the provincial final four this weekend at the Burge gym. I'm yep. believing tickets are available. If people want to go see that you're talking as the, t- one of the top volleyball programs in North America. There you go. Uh, if somebody wanted to go and check out the Brock hockey this Saturday night, do you know if there's any tickets available still? Uh, there may be a few. You can go to our website or you can, you know, you can call in and, and go to the welcome desk and have some tickets put aside. Um, geez, I'd say call me, but uh, <laughs> uh, I would be inundated and I'm not that silly, but so I'm not giving my number out. But yeah, uh, check the website out. Uh, we will be very close to solo probably by Thursday afternoon, um, and that's with you know we got a busload of people that are leaving tomorrow morning on our Badger bus to head to Halifax for the national basketball, and so we'll have a nice contingent there wearing Badger red uh, through the national championships in basketball. So it's you know it's that old thing you got to walk the walk, you got to talk to talk, or something like that. And so matter no matter where we'll play, uh, our students will be there. I, I got to go, but I do have to ask this question. Are any other schools being in touch with you guys to say, hey, what are, are, are they asking the same questions I am? Are you getting any other schools reaching out to say, how are you doing this? In the la- at the last OUA meeting, um, you know, we, sp- we try to share uh, and we ask questions because a lot of the directors in these other universities do a lot of great things here. So, and I ask questions and, and I had a couple of universities say, I'd love to sit down with you and talk to you about how you, how, what your student engagement is like and why you have success with it. And so, yeah, um, we're getting asked, and we're, you know what? All that does is create a better atmosphere for all of us. Uh, so if we can help somebody, uh, look, it's not brain surgery, we can help. Neil Lumsden, Athletic Director from Brock University. Again, MAC Volleyball this weekend, top, one of the top programs in North America, swept Ohio State, swept Long Beach State earlier this year. Or Brock Hockey on Saturday night, if you want to check them out, go to the Brock University Athletics webpage. Neil, thanks for doing this tonight. Uh, Pleasure as always, Scott. Thanks. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.